Hello and welcome to The Hardy Brain, the show that takes athletic, introverted entrepreneurs and leaders and transforms them into ironclad brain performers. I'm your host, Dr. David Hardy. Today we've got an amazing guest, Dr. Shabna Deskar, who is a clinician, a health tech enthusiast, and a brain health advocate. Glad to see you today. How are you doing? Thank you, David. That was awesome. I am doing well. How about you? Oh, fantastic. Now, you've gone through quite the journey. You were an OBGYN in India, and now you're a healthcare consultant in Alberta, Canada, correct? Yeah, that's right. All right. So what's been kind of your health and medical journey then that you've been on? Oh, that, that's a long, long history. So I was working as a regular OBGY in India for many years. So I used to deliver babies, do surgeries and all the stuff that OBGYs do. And uh, once when I got introduced to, so my journey started with bioidentical hormones and I heard a physician from the US who came to India and he was speaking at, an, at a conference and I thought I am an OBGY and I've never heard of bioidenticals okay. so I decided no I don't want to remain ignorant so I started uh, going to some conferences and back this is, was a long time ago they didn't have even today they don't have a lot of conferences in India so I would go to Dubai in the UAE and then yes. I decided, no, I need to explore this a lot more because this seems to be a way more interesting way to practice medicine than what I've been doing. So and I got... How, how so, though? Sorry? Well, how so? What were kind of some of the differences? And Oh, okay. So in, in Western medicine, what we essentially do is, and again, as an OBGY, I was taking part in something that nature has already designed very well. <laughs> Right. So uh, not so much of the disease world, but what we essentially looked at is what are the problems and what are the few solutions? We never looked at the, you know, the patient as a whole, because and like I say, I was a below the belt doctor. So we used to focus on <laughs> the uterus tubes and ovaries and, you know, things below there. And we never thought of how the cut had any impact how the brain had any impact and how everything is interrelated. So we were very, you know, system focused and OBGY does not look at the brain or the heart or any of that. But as you know, they are all related. So that oh, was the major par paradigm change in my thinking when I got myself a fellowship trained from the A4M. And uh, so that has essentially been my journey. And um, I conducted the last delivery and surgery way back in 2013. So after that, I've not done any of regular OBGY. All right. Now, did you kind of branch out into more bioidenticals when you were in India? Or was that kind of more of a process when, when you moved here to Canada? Oh, very interesting question. Yes, that was more of a process in the sense that in India, we don't have a lot of options of using bioidenticals because uh, back then, we, even today, actually, we don't have very reliable compounding pharmacies. And a lot of the pharmaceutical bioidenticals are still not available, like the patches and all. Some are, but not everything. So when uh, we moved to Canada, uh, I... I started associating with another a physician in Alberta. So she is trained in the from the A4M as well, and she is known for bioidentical hormones. 
So that, that was when I learned more from the practical aspects. But uh, today, my focus is not only on hormones, like you right. mentioned. So I'm more focused on brain health. Of course, hormones are a very big part of brain health, but they are not the only thing. <laughs> Definitely. Now, let's quickly kind of go back to the hormones, though, um, because a lot of people out there really get fixated on it. I know like a lot of men, they're like, oh, I, I'm over 40. I need to start taking tea or mm -hmm. uh, a lot of women's health is kind of based upon uh, estrogen progesterone balance. And uh, we're, we're seeing obviously that that's going to affect our psyche and our brain health as well. Um, but where do you kind of start when the conversation of hormones come up then? Okay, that's a great question, David, because the fact is, you know, when we mention the word hormones, somehow people think of only the sex hormone, so that is testosterone right. and estrogen. And progesterone, poor thing, is always treated as a poor cousin. <laughs> so I've talked about that. And for, for the brain, progesterone is also extremely important. So the other important thing is, other than the sex hormones, there is insulin, there is cortisol, there is DHEA, there yeah. is pregnenolone. All of these hormones are extremely important. So in functional medicine, we talk about hormonal balance. Whereas in the rest of the world, the moment you mention the term hormones, if it's like men, they only think of testosterone, but men make estrogen too. Yes. And men make you know cortisol and insulin and DHEA and thyroid hormones or, as well. So we talk about hormonal balance. So it's not like having too much of testosterone because you don't know whether too much of testosterone in men is getting converted to you know estrogen or it is doing what uh, testosterone is supposed to do so that is where i think you know having advanced knowledge in hormone therapy matters a lot rather than oh you just need to slather some hormones on your skin and you should be good to go <laughs> right, exactly yeah yeah now, i'm, I'm uh, very excited that you mentioned insulin with this because so many people have blood sugar dysregulations and, of yeah. course, spikes and dips in their insulin. And I kind of see insulin as being kind of the foundation for hormones. Obviously, cholesterol is, is the one that gets converted into all different hormones. But as far as kind of priority in the body, if we can't balance our energies, mm -hmm. then the priority of sex and sexual reproduction falls dramatically. So you see all these yeah. men out there who are obese and have blood sugar dysregulations and women as well that are going through all these different phases in the cycle that, that just should not be happening. And they're looking for these complex treatments because they've heard of bioidenticals and everything else in that world, but they haven't managed the first thing, which is always to look at energy and blood sugar regulation because that is the number one priority to keep people alive and moving. Is that kind of your perspective on it as Thank well? Thank you, David. It's lovely to hear someone else talking about, you know, insulin and metabolism and all of that. Because, uh, you know, when I talk about brain health, so this is, this is a conversation that always comes up. You know, people are looking at new stuff and longevity and all of that. And I'm saying, you know, I like to focus on the foundations first. Right. So as you mentioned, so number one is optimal blood glucose levels. 
Next is optimal blood pressure levels. So blood pressure hypertension is something that not a lot of people talk about. And <laughs> no, it is so poorly managed. And yes. number three is low levels of chronic inflammation. So these right. are the three foundations. And it's not just for brain health. When I talk about brain health, I talk about these three. But as you know, brain health and heart health and gut health and health in general is not like distinctive separate things. They are all the same. They all mm -hmm. matter. Yes. And insulin and carbohydrate metabolism is primary, whether you we are looking at you know, heart disease risk, whether we're looking at dementia risk, if insulin and blood sh sugar control or blood glucose control is not optimal, it's like there are no magic supplements and treatment and things like that, which are going to change a whole lot of other things if we don't have these things dialed in well. Exactly. Uh, yeah. And yeah. you brought about, you know, you brought this conversation about energy levels. So because of my focus on brain health, so one of the things that we know is, you know, dementias like Alzheimer's disease start about 20 to 30 years before people actually have symptoms. And the other interesting, this is again, fairly recent research, which shows that one of the earliest things that happens in the brain is it loses its ability to use glucose as a fuel. So right. the brain essentially has a fuel fueling problem. And it's sort of like Alzheimer's is also called type 3 diabetes. And uh, that is because it's, there's a problem of you know, insulin carbohydrate metabolism of the brain. And it could be quite distinct from what is going on in the rest of the body. And the other interesting thing is, you know, because women have, you know, women and brain health is again a, a very different. Similarly, it is with heart health as well. Right. So women in the menopausal transition during the perimenopausal period also have a brain fueling problem because of the hormonal imbalances so again oh. they are not able to utilize glucose as well as they would do with you know ketones right. so i don't know david how deep you want to go down that route but that is a very interesting you know interesting pathways that we can explore for brain health and overall health in general right definitely like one of the big things too, like why we talk brain health and hormones in the same sentence too, is basically the brain is sending signals to only two places in the body. They're going to send signals to either muscles or to glands. And then of course the glands produce the hormones. So, and then there's the feedback loop back to the brain about this regulation system. Mm -hmm. And all of that's occurring without us being aware of it and affects our mood, how we feel, our performance, everything in that. So what are some of the things you've seen? And more importantly, kind of what are the warning signs that people feel when these systems are going haywire? Oh, thank you. There's so much to talk about that. So the brain is actually, you know, <laughs> the, we used to talk about the brain as being the master regulator. So yes, it is the master or the mistress regulator, but it is also impacted by everything else that's going on. So the gut has a huge impact on the brain. And we, are, we found out so much more now about the bidirectionality. So the gut sends signals to the brain and the brain sends signals to the gut as well. And some of the signals from the gut to the brain are also extremely significant when it comes to gut health and all that. But when it comes to brain function, 
very interestingly uh, most of these hormones like cortisol uh, estrogen progesterone testosterone these are actually locally made in the brain as well so they are called neurosteroids so neuro meaning nerve, nerve tissue and steroids is the chemical structure so in addition to these hormones having action in other parts of the of the body the brain has local ability to make these hormones now you know mother nature does not create redundancy so obviously they have a huge role in the brain locally so mm-hmm. all these hormones in addition to being you know whatever is present in your blood would reflect some of that but at the same time the brain has the ability to make them locally but so far we don't have an easy way to find out you know what what are the hormone levels in the brain because we would have to do a spinal tap and that is not necessary so uh, blood levels of hormones and particularly saliva levels would indicate the tissue levels and that kind of correlates with what is going on in the brain now your next important question is how would someone suspect if there's a problem with their insulin carbohydrate metabolism so from a you know if you don't someone doesn't want to go to the lab to get lab work done if they have belly fat or if they are you know people of south asian ancestry i don't know whether you know this they have more visceral fat so that is the bad oh, metabolic okay. unhealthy fat at lower body weight levels so they okay. are what we call you know thin outside fat inside so tofi <laughs> you know so <laughs> and that is that is applicable for a lot of other people so we always say you know body weight is not the best measure of your metabolic health and someone may look like they are, they don't have excess body weight but then you find out that they have more fat and less of muscle mass so muscles are extremely wow. important for insulin and carbohydrate metabolism because our bodies were designed to move and what are we doing now we spend so much of our time sitting <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so muscles are very important for insulin carbohydrate metabolism because muscles use up the glucose. So first is belly fat. Second would be, you know, if they can someone can do a body composition analysis, so knowing how much of it is muscle, how much of it is fat because if we go by just body weight, someone who's very muscular and, you know, ex- exercises or physically active that person will have more total total body weight because they have more muscles but right. that is so right right now you're saying bmi is not a good example of how not health. a good example no <laughs> yet for some yeah. reason that seems to be a standard in in traditional healthcare the reason is it's very easy to check because you just ah. get on the scale and there's your weight you know <laughs> <laughs> So BMI number one is not, uh, and again for different ethnicities there are different cutoffs. I am not getting into that. Right. So yeah. belly fat is one. The other is waist hip circumference. Obviously, if someone has more belly fat, then that ratio is skewed. And if it is someone who is very physically active, but they find that they have to really work out very hard to maintain their body composition. or if it's a woman and she has pcos or she had pregnancy diabetes or right. if it is someone who has fatty liver like the doctor has um, had done an ultrasound examination tested some liver enzymes and said you are on that path so fatty liver is a metabolism problem it's a problem of insulin resistance and you know insulin carbohydrate metabolism 
and a lot of yeah and a lot of people unfortunately don't know that most people with fatty liver don't always die of cirrhosis or liver cancer they die of cardiovascular disease so they die of heart disease and stroke and things like that and no one talks about the liver when it comes to you know metabolic health except of course i am sure you live in a bubble as i do where you know right. <laughs> we meet people who think like us so we are talking about liver health not yeah. everyone talks about liver health <laughs> No, that, that that's been one of the things then that's really motivated me recently to to start having these discussions is oh, it okay. seems that everyone in these circles has this great understanding about health and basically how the systems are related to to each other but it seems to be that yeah we are kind of more in a bubble and it's the same conversations happening with the same people and yeah. it hasn't reached the masses yet. Now yeah. you've been in two different countries and and practiced health in both. Um, what would you say are some of the the big uh, kind of similarities and differences between the declining health in India and the declining health in North America? Oh, very interesting question, David. So when I moved from India, now India is a third world country where we don't have, you know, healthcare. And I moved to Canada, and here, like, the first surprise for me was like, oh, I'm going to I'm going for lab tests, and I don't have to pay. <laughs> you know? I'm going to the doctor, and I don't have to pay. It's like it's such a big, uh, you know, difference in the healthcare system. And here I would find people saying, you know, oh, the Canada health system has problems. Yes, it ha- every system in the world has problems, but problems yes. compared to what? So yes. I would explain to people here that, so many people would ask me, what do you mean? Like, what do you mean about the healthcare system in India versus it is here? I said, in India, it, it sounds horrible, but a person can live or die depending on how much money they have, who they know and where they live. Whereas in Canada, I know no one is going to die of an MI because they were in a remote place or they like it's very uncommon to not have access unless they're on the top of a mountain. And then, the you know, the medivac is going to take some time That's to right. read. So, so but, that's kind of the, the traumatic care. And of course, yeah. yeah, we've we've got a great system when people are in trouble that, yeah. that they have that need. What about more kind of once again for the the chronic disorders the chronic. And, and for for performance and to, to enhance and optimize your your health and living? Thank you, David. That's an excellent question. So back when you know I was in India and we used to read about healthcare systems in other countries, I thought, oh, Canada is a country like you know the Scandinavian countries. They have healthcare coverage. So they must be having you know people must be having much better health. But then I realized just because something is free and available, that doesn't mean people are using to the optimal extent, number one. Number two, you know, the way medicine is, you know, sort of designed, I would say, we are, medicine is more focused on illness care rather than wellness care. We don't want to look at, I won't say we don't want to, we don't have the opportunity to look at prevention like people would always tell me don't talk about prevention no one wants to prevent anything you know (laughs) (laughs) right it's kind of been a swear word almost yeah it's like it's not it's not a nice word it's not it's not something that is going to get your clients people (laughs) but 
but no tell me because <laughs> no one really wants to prevent dementia or prevent any of that but anyway so here now what has happened is you don't go to a i mean a person doesn't normally go to a doctor unless they have some symptoms or something has to go wrong it's not like they go for an annual checkup which is again i have so many pet peeves about the annual checkup because it doesn't <laughs> right. see anything much <laughs> so in india it is in a way it is worse because there is no primary healthcare system as such so each time someone has a problem they have to go to a doctor and government health support is there but you know again it's very complex it's like in a big city of educated middle class people would go for private healthcare so private healthcare they are paying for the consultation they are paying for the lab tests they're paying for the medicines they're paying for everything right so naturally someone with for example diabetes that person is not going to go every month it's good if they go every 3 months but yes. many most of them don't so what ends up happening is they don't even know that diabetes is not under control now one of the things that you mentioned about the you know the what is going on with modern life that is making countries like you know india much sicker so india is the diabetes capital of the world what and in yeah and in really? context you know by 2025 there're going to be 75 million people with diabetes in india and canada's population is 37 million yes <laughs> so you can just just see what the figures are of course india's population is 1.2 billion yeah and the unfortunate thing is uh, diseases like hypertension diabetes heart disease uh, these occur much earlier at least 10 years before in people in uh, and not just in india south asian population versus in the western population so obviously the question comes you know why is that so so we don't have all the answers but some of the things is again i know david you will relate to that because we've had conversations about how food is made today yes. like the commercially pre- prepared food versus what food was even when i was growing up in in india so i always give the example because rice and roti so roti is made of wheat is very common in india these are like kind of staple depending on where in the country you are right but the rice that we ate as kids was the unrefined one that used to come you know manually threshed and it had all the husks and everything it had to be sorted out likewise the wheat was not processed in a factory it was it was not as refined so the metabolic response to the i call that the new rice new okay. rice and the new wheat is very different from what it was back then because a lot of people will ask me oh i am still eating the same kind of food as my grandparents ate they ate rice and fish and you know vegetables or rice i mean roti and this and that so why i don't why do i have such poor health when my my grandparents had all these diabetes and hypertension when they were much older i said yeah, yeah from the outside the food looks the same when it is not <laughs> Oh, and I'm, I'm similar here so david there is i don't know whether i can find the slide right now so if you have show notes so there is a very nice slide on chicken over the years in and this was a paper from calgary okay so back in the 50s the chicken looked really scrawny versus <laughs> yeah. and i i think it was in the 90s it's like as they say you know pictures worth a thousand words i <laughs> I let me look for that if I can find it maybe you could add it to the show notes it's right. so dramatic i tell you 
Oh yeah, it's the scrawny little chicken that's ballooned into this behemoth, yeah. uh, and yeah. it, it it fascinates me though too that because most people are are going around saying if you had a diet of rice and wheat that that would be healthy and this isn't even going into like the processed sugar mm -hmm. and all the junk food that we've added in this is just the changing of two stapled carbohydrates and basically taking away the fiber and then just the sugar content explodes in, in that food and uh and then you add pesticides to yes. that and fertilizers so synthetic fertilizers so this is an you know i one of my soapboxes pet peeves what do we want to call them is right. healthy whole grains you know so healthy whole grains you'll hear everywhere people talking about oh you need to eat healthy whole grains i said number one is what is the definition of a whole grain there's nothing that has remained a whole grain and because I have, I look after patients in India through telehealth. So I get my patients and some of them to use a continuous blood glucose monitor. Okay. So some of the glycemic, the blood glucose responses from so-called healthy whole grains is like, you know, really high. So in Canadian terms, it would be like eight millimoles per liter, that kind of levels. Okay. And that is, that is in people who do not have diabetes. <laughs> yeah those who have diabetes it is it sometimes it is much worse right so it, it's like it's not healthy whole grains for them you know you have to for each person it is different so that's and that is where the health technology part excites me because now we are able to check blood glucose levels continuously and i'm excited about you know a time when we will be able to measure blood pressure continuously and not have to put on that cuff and inflate it and sit you know still for 5 minutes <laughs> <laughs> definitely well yeah that's that goes into basically the the healthcare technology the yeah. the wearable devices and everything that can get you to monitor things in real time versus yeah the appointment that happens every once a year type thing like you mentioned so yeah and important to stress that there's there's there, that there available is, there now are, yeah there are two sides to the story because very often you know and i feel really bad when people talk about oh if i take this information to my doctor he is not really going to bother much with it he says he doesn't have you know okay what did you find out kind of I said, you know, the poor doctor has to go through so much in that small, short 15 minutes of your consultation time. So what yes. we need is, you know, more uh, easy to understand dashboards. It's like, okay, if I don't sleep enough, I don't move enough, this is the correlation to my blood glucose levels and I end up eating, you know, things that I should not be eating. Yeah. So this correlation, you don't necessarily need a doctor to tell you. That is information that should come from our wearables and all that. And we will reach there. But like I was telling some of these, you know, techie folks, I said, you give me an Excel spreadsheet with all this data. I am not going to feel excited about it. <laughs> I always no, say, you know, not at all. if I loved Excel spreadsheets, I would have become an engineer. <laughs> so, so we so, need good interpretation. Mm -hmm. So that I said, I need a one pager, which tells me, this person did this, 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 and this is what happened. And for that, you don't need a doctor to tell you, you know, a right. lot of this stuff. <laughs> yeah, I think that's important. People can take control over their health and see somebody when they, yeah. when they need to. 
or when yeah i mean then they struggle with something which they feel that they can, and i'm not talking about acute care of course they need to go to the physician but you know the fact that you are not sleeping well because you're watching netflix you know uh, well past midnight and right. that results in a high fasting blood glucose in the morning because you you know ate a bunch of chips <laughs> when you were watching tv right you don't need a doctor to tell you that right no you don't well some people some people might actually and uh no a lot of and, people don't get insight from their yeah. own information unless they have like a prompt telling them see you did this last night and today your blood glucose levels are better you ate a uh, you know nice juicy steak and some you know vegetables with that instead of having your you know pasta or bread or something so see how good your blood glucose levels are today right, versus yeah. you know last night you spent your time with this friend who does not eat healthy <laughs> this is what happened to you today i exactly, think we'll yeah. <laughs> so so how would you kind of define personalized medicine and functional medicine then uh so personalized medicine is a very uh, you know broad term in certain respects so i like to use the term individualized medicine because personalized medicine by definition should include genetics and gut microbiome mm-hmm. and you know, all those different layers of metabolomics and proteomics and uh, i don't know a whole lot of stuff all which genomics. we are not there yet Right. So that is my point because we haven't yet reached a point and I'm sure we will very soon where just by looking at someone's you know genetic information or the gut microbiome report along with their blood work I can say okay you just need to eat this and don't eat that just take this magic supplement and you're going to be good but in individualized medicine which is what functional medicine looks at more than anything else is what are your specific you know challenges maybe someone is just looking for more energy they are not focused on their blood glucose levels at this point because first of all they may not even know that it's not optimal right so help helping people what they already want to do so i got trained as a tiny habits coach recently and the okay. founder of tiny habits method dr bj fog says help people what they already want to do and i used to think but bj what if they want to do something that has no impact on health so <laughs> <laughs> he says no once they start feeling good because of you know being successful at something they want to do then they can handle their more difficult you know habits which are not really helping them so that is the individualized part it's like you know a, she's a busy mother she's taking care of you know two kids she's working full time she take she's taking care of the home and i suggest that she should do something which involves like 2 hours of cooking every day but that's not practical right so right. we have to you know this is like a troubleshooting together because sometimes you know we feel that oh this must be quite obvious to someone you know it may not be because the they are living in their own you know complex problems and this and that our jobs is to make it easier for them okay these are the different options you could try maybe you could look for a food delivery which gives you you know provides you with food that you can readily cook and don't have to go through chopping and cutting and preparing or you could maybe hire someone to do the prep right. so many so you're taking things. some of that stress out of the daily life yeah. so that they can eat healthy exactly it's like yeah. to make it easy for them to do the things that are going to help them versus right. you know i add more stress oh you're not doing this you're not doing that you should be doing that 
<laughs> and sometimes that's how I feel like some of the devices might actually yeah. end up doing is is adding a little more stress to people. Um, yeah. So I think the, the right. simple big picture sometimes helps too. Absolutely. You know, uh, so I use a, uh, this is a Fitbit uh, watch. And I know the nights I have gone to bed late because I had a late night meeting with India. Next morning, I'm not going to look at my sleep data. <laughs> I don't want more stress. Right. Yeah, you already know what it is. It's time. I know that I didn't sleep well last night because I, I was like, you know, I was awake until late in the evening, and then I had to wake up early in the morning because I had an appointment. So I'm not going to look at my data that day. Right. No, I think this is valuable for people listening too. Is you're in charge of people's health. That's yeah. that's why they're showing up, and. Yet, there's always going to be challenges, especially with professionals, to manage their own health. And I think giving other people an insight into everybody in this field is that we're, we're not perfect with any of this, but oh, we're definitely striving <laughs> for it. Like, yeah. it's, it's, a, yeah. it's an everyday thing. It's never constant. It's not like every day we realize that there is, oh, this is something I could change. So th that's that's so important, you know. It, it's like it's not constant. And when it comes to wearables, another recent and personal uh, this thing. So my Fitbit prompted me that I was sitting for I think it was ten hours or something. And I said I don't want to sit for that many hours because I made a decision few years ago that I'm going to use a, a standing desk for all my Zoom calls. Then I realized I must have had less of Zoom calls and more of preparing for presentations. So okay. that is when I sit. And right. then I decided, okay, I'm going to get rid of my chair even from there. And now I realized, oh, why are my legs hurting? I've been standing for too long. Right. <laughs> but it's not like the wearable data did not make me change anything. It did because it said, I said, oh, I don't want to sit for 10 hours a day. <laughs> what right, was yeah. I thinking? <laughs> and who would really think about that if there wasn't a prompt? Yeah. It's your normal day work. And then all of a sudden you realize, you're sluggish, tired, and not functioning yep. properly. Yeah. What are some other health things that you do for yourself then? Oh, great question. So I wish I would do more, but, but I don't. <laughs> so sleep is one of the major areas I focus on. And when it comes to sleep, uh, I'm middle-aged and, you know, menopausal, though I'm on hormone therapy. So obviously, and I'm sure you've met so many patients and so many people you know, women after you know their menopause go through a lot of challenges with sleep and exactly. that is actually chronic insomnia that is not a problem of someone who does not prioritize sleep because there are a lot of people who think that sleep is you know oh that's a luxury i don't have i'm going to sleep the day i die you know things like that right yeah. that is a different problem so this is one whenever there is any conversation about sleep this is a big missing piece because everyone is talking about if you sleep less, you're going to die early, your brain cells are dying, and you're going to do this and you're going to do that. Right. And I was someone who had chronic insomnia. So I know how horrible that feels because I can't sleep despite, you know, giving sleep all the priority. So until I got to know about CBTI, so this is cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. Okay. So for chronic insomnia, it is CBTI that works. It is not going to be sleep hygiene of switching off your lights early in the evening, wear those 
you know, horrible yellow colored glasses. <laughs> None of that is going to help. You know, have caffeine early in the evening, or, sorry, early in the day. And it is very frustrating if you have chronic insomnia and everywhere you're reading about sleep hygiene, you know, oh, you think I'm already yeah. doing all this. I'm still not sleeping so well. Many people go down the wrong path when it comes to, yeah. comes to getting better, that something popular might not be what's popular for your own body. So exactly. yeah, dive into this more. I, I'm interested. So, Oh, about the CBTI? About, about how, once again, with this, this issue that most people probably haven't heard of, and yet they probably know somebody out there who's suffering with sleep issues that have tried, yeah, the sleep hygiene, uh, yeah. decreasing stimulation, decreasing caffeine, and still or can't having sleep. chamomile tea. Right. Yeah, exactly. All the stuff so, that might work for a lot of people that don't work for them. Yeah. Though. So what is this other pathway they can go down with sleep? There are essentially three different problems when it comes to sleep. One is people who do not think sleep is important. So they don't schedule enough time to sleep. So right. they work late into the evening, wake up early in the morning. They just have five hours to sleep. And obviously, they're not sleeping for five hours. They're sleeping for four and a half hours. And because they are able to perform reasonably well the next day, and particularly if they are young, they don't realize the importance of it. Versus the second category is a lot of women are in that category, men as well, who yeah. have problems of chronic insomnia. So this is trouble falling asleep, staying asleep, despite having the opportunity to sleep. So people with chronic insomnia, David, you'll find they are the people who will go to bed at 10 p.m., whether they feel sleepy or they don't feel sleepy. Right. How do yes. I know? I was one of them. <laughs> but the the thing that you know people with chronic insomnia do is getting into bed when they're not sleepy that is the one thing getting in the way of their sleep. Okay. So that, this was stuff I learned after I got myself trained as a CBTI coach. Okay. And in such situations, all these uh, sedative hypnotics or all the sleeping medicines, they don't help. Those medicines are for short-term acute insomnia. Someone is going through a traumatic experience or you know they're dealing with a lot of stuff for short term. They've got insomnia. Those work well. They are not meant to be had for years and years. And Oh, no. <laughs> no. Not at so all. So before I come to the solution for chronic insomnia, there's a third category of sleep problems, which is in the world of the sleep medicine doctor, not my. So that is obstructive sleep apnea and sleep disorders. And those are not like my expertise is not in that area. But obstructive sleep apnea is something that people can screen for because they will need a sleep study to confirm. Right. So yes. it's. Uh, yeah. So if, if I tell my, you know, ask my patients, uh, you know, does your partner or your wife ever, you know, nudge you in the ribs in the middle of the night because you stop breathing? <laughs> so that is, and unfortunately, again, here women and sleep apnea are not diagnosed easily because women do not have these episodes. They may have symptoms like hallucinations, irritability, loss of focus, and, you know, poor energy, early morning headaches. And very often women are dismissed off as saying, oh, that's all your age, you're menopausal now, or it's all in your head, much worse. But actually they have a solvable problem of sleep apnea. So that is again, an, I mean, I can go down have it all. Right, yeah. Going back to chronic insomnia and the treatment, and this is treatment based on guidelines. 
which says that CBTI, so cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, is the best treatment for chronic insomnia and the first line. But unfortunately, what uh, used to happen, and that has changed now, CBTI was always delivered by psychologists, and it's usually a six-week program. So it was always one-on-one. So what used to happen is, number one, there there weren't that many psychologists who are, you know, focused on CBTI. So people did not get referred to them. And sometimes, you know, insurance would not cover for so many consults. And going to a psychologist six times is not a small Mm -hmm. amount of money. No. And psychologists cannot charge less because if they have to keep their certification, they have to charge a certain amount. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So now there are some online solutions. So there are apps available. There are online programs which cost like, you know, 90 US. What are some of the techniques they're going to use with this then? One of the first ones is uh, not going to bed until you actually like fall asleep. You're about to fall, fall asleep. When you're sleepy, that is when you go to bed because if I spend time awake in bed, my brain gets the idea that, oh, so bed is not necessarily a place for sleeping. I can stay awake. So the, yes. bra- the brain does not get the right information if I'm awake in bed. And the other, so this is like for people with chronic insomnia, these are the things that we resist a lot. Things like if you are awake and you, like if you're awake, you know, you know are you going to fall asleep again or are you going to stay awake? You know, counting sheep or whatever. Right. If yeah. you feel that in half an hour you've not gone back to bed, just get out of bed, do something else, sit on a chair, read a book, or something, or you know, some hobby or something, and go back to bed when you are sleepy. And this okay. you can do for two to three times a night, you know. But the quality of sleep that you get after doing all of this. And a lot of people have been able to actually stop their sleep medications, but that has to be kind of titrated down in a careful way. Another thing which, to me, this was, again, a major insight was there's something called positive sleep thoughts. And I thought, oh, what a positive thinking. How is that? It seems out there, right? (laughs) Yeah, it seems like But I realized that it worked. Things like, you know, I am still getting my core five and a half hours of sleep. So that is not going to kill me. Or things like, you know, I have been able to do everything that I was supposed to do the next day, even though I did not get good sleep. And all those things were true. You know, I realized <laughs> well, like, nobody can make out that I slept only four hours last night because yeah. <laughs> I'm doing everything else. Okay. So those positive sleep thoughts do matter. And it's things like, oh, I'm, my sleep is getting better. And I know I'm going to overcome this. And I couldn't think that before doing the CBTI because my sleep was not getting better. (laughs) Right. Wow. So CBTI is something I make a point to talk about because it is so below the radar. People don't talk about it other than, you know, those who are trained in CBTI. And now there are online programs available which work just as well as in person. Fantastic. That is amazing stuff. And yeah, there's a lot of people that obviously are not aware of other things. And I think it's once again, very important that you recognize if something popular doesn't work, then it's time to find another, another avenue. Yeah. uh, You've brought in such wealth and experience from basically kind of the traditional side of things to the ancient side of things to 
now kind of a blend of it, different systems, different healthcare systems, and really connected them together. Is there one last point that you'd like to make before we kind of wrap things up here? Oh, thank you, David. And so one last point I want to make because we started a conversation with insulin and carbohydrate. So what is an optimal blood glucose level? Ah. So (laughs) optimal blood glucose level, it's not not having diabetes because that diabetes is a continuum. So just because diabetes by definition is if your blood glucose levels has gone beyond a certain number. Now, it doesn't mean that before that, when the numbers are climbing, you are not you don't have any problem because in some people, Things like hypertension, so the commoner hypertension, the primary hypertension, that shows up many years before they actually have diabetes. So it's in the same continuum. So fatty liver may show up before, you know, they are called diabetes. Mm-hmm. So ideal, ideally, and there are studies supporting it, uh, the best optimal numbers for in Canadian units would be between 3.9 and 7.3. Some people okay. say 7.2, so it's it's a very strict range. And hemoglobin A1c is not a good measure for blood glucose levels because it's no. showing you an average, right. average of three months. Now, in that average, there may have been times when someone's blood glucose has gone like way beyond their optimal range. And yes, there may have been times when it has go- gone down very low. So the average hemoglobin A1c does not represent that. But what it does is hemoglobin A1c is not to be dismissed as a measure because what it measures is something called glycation. So advanced glycation end products, AGE, they are related to sort of, to put it very roughly, it's like rusting of the tissues. And it's blood glucose levels, which are one of the major factors which cause this, you know, rusting. So, yes, hemoglobin A1c does need to be at a lower level, but it does not reflect blood glucose numbers for everyone. Some people, if they have iron deficiency, and it is more common now because a lot of people are vegans and vegetarians, and if they're not supplementing, they're not getting enough iron then hemoglobin A1c is not a good measure for such people. And there are certain ethnicities as well. So, so I it would be the best world, measurement then. Yeah, thank you. In the ideal world, I would love to put everyone through a continuous blood glucose monitor for at least two weeks. So you get to buy, and in Canada, actually, we are lucky because we don't need a prescription. We can buy them online ourselves. So there are many different devices and a newer one, which has not come to Canada yet, where you insert it once and it can last for six months. So now most of the sensors are for two weeks and they do cost a little more. But my point is when you talk about cost versus benefits, doing two weeks of continuous blood glucose monitoring gives you way more information than the money you would spend on it. So that is what I would say. And then again, there are caveats about the accuracy and things like that. Some are more accurate than the others. Oh, definitely. Yeah, so when you do that, you know, continuous blood glucose monitoring, another important parameter we get to see, which we can't see if someone is just doing, you know, glucometer, because how many times, like, I hate, you know, using this needle sticks to check my blood glucose. I don't know. So I think this is extremely valuable that, yeah, that two weeks of just something you can purchase online is going to give you this wealth of information on that. 
And uh, what uh, kind of, in one or two sentences, what would be their takeaway from all this measurement in two weeks? The most important, you know, insight most people get from the continuous, from the CGM data is most of them have no idea which are the food that raises their blood glucose so high. Uh, yes. It's like I talked about this whole grain rotis and a lot of those you know, grains and carbohydrates. Most of them have no idea that pop, like one patient I remember, she would love popcorns. And we told her, you know, you need to kind of yeah. stop completely or <laughs> reduce that. And when she did a CGM and she found that her blood glucose goes up so much with popcorn, so that was when she really, because each person has a different response to a particular food. So when people ask me, so Dr. Shabnam, tell me, I have diabetes, what is the best food for me? I said, I have no idea because you have to do a personalized blood glucose response to know. So that is the most valuable information that they get because it is their own information. And most of them are shocked to know the blood glucose responses to some of the food that they thought were very healthy. I think that's extremely important to note. It is all how your individual body responds to things and then to form a plan from it from there. I appreciate your time, your knowledge, your wisdom on everything. And once again, the hearty brain taking athletic, introverted entrepreneurs and leaders and transforming them into ironclad brain performers. Once again, thank you, Dr. Descar, and we will talk to you again. Have a great day. Thank you.